Hello, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a classical podcast put on by some classy dudes. That's us. Hey, those dudes are Graham Donaldson. Hi. And AJ Hannenberg. That is me. Yep. Indeed. And I guess, <laughs> Would you I don't feel very classy right now. We're in like shorts and yeah. summer wear. My, my t-shirt literally says like a boss, and then boss is crossed out, and then it says teacher below it. It was a gift. It, it was, was a gift. gift. Don't yeah. judge me. I'm too it's late. It's a very we, soft far shirt. Far too late. Because, yeah, you could have gotten away with it if you hadn't just told our entire millions of people listening oh. right now. Oh. I mean, let us pop another bottle of champagne. Wait, what? And Are you cont- trying to sound classy? And oh. let me refill <laughs> my happening? pipe with the finest tobacco. Uh-huh. Would you like some more caviar, Graham? I would. I notice that you're a I would right like now. caviar. Please open that fish, and I will eat whatever <laughs> beads fall out of it. It sounds... Horrible. Hey. That's what caviar is. Speaking of horrible things. I'm usually choosy with my fish beads. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, AJ, you have a topic for us. All right. So today I wanted to chat a little bit about uh, Dostoevsky, an mm-hmm. author that many people know about, but nobody usually reads because mm. uh, his books are long and just the most Russian thing ever. Uh, so he was a Russian guy himself. And when he was young, he kind of fell in with a bad crowd and ended up getting indicted and convicted for kind of like sedition and rebellious practices. And he was going to bring this mother down. He was going to rip the system. Yeah, yep. he was going to rip he was going to totally rip that system and then <laughs> they caught him and got him in trouble for it. They had like a discussion group where they, you know, discuss all kinds of things. And he got... It would have been a podcast had it been... Oh, yeah. Now it would definitely have been a podcast. <laughs> what? Well. One, that, one that you can only find on the deep web. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like this one, right? Yeah. So he was caught... Listeners, little do you know that there is a cla- classical stuff <laughs> you should dishes. know yeah. podcast on the deep... No, I was kidding. Wouldn't Don't. it be... Okay. Classical stuff only a select few <laughs> should know. All right. So he was convicted and... Part of his punishment was that he was sentenced to death. Oh, that is part of the punishment? Yeah. Weirdly, yes. I would think that would be pretty much the bulk of the punishment. (laughs) But he was set up to go and face firing squad. And so they're driving. And he doesn't really know what's happening. He's like, doot, doot, doot. And then they show up. And they are lined up. And they are told that they are going to be killed. And he kind of has a last chat with his friends. And he is terrified out of his mind. And he has like two minutes to live. And then he, at the last minute... Someone comes in and says, the czar has commuted your punishment. You will not be killed, but rather be sent to exile in Siberia and do work camps. Hmm. So he eventually did go to these work camps, and it was a horrible, horrible place. Whoa. And was that a setup? Like, was that just what they normally did? Be like, all right, let's, <laughs> we'll mess, with this let's guy. mess with this guy. Look at his face when we told him. Yes. Yeah? Awesome. Wait, really? it was a, there was never going to actually be an execution. <laughs> it was part of the punishment that they scare the, you know, scare the britches off him. And scared then, straight. Yeah, really, scared straight. And then they sent him to Siberia to work in the work camps. Mm-hmm. And then he, like, he hated jail. He thought it was terrible. He thought... Well, yeah. It wasn't commensurate with what happened, and there was so much disease and so much horror and so much pain, and it was a, it was an awful place. And he came out, and he was, uh, for the rest of his life, he was a believer, but he had always struggled with really big questions about who God was and uh, just, you know, like, like any Christian does or, you know, any, any thinking Christian will deal with these big questions mm-hmm. and deal with doubts every now and again. And... I think that's just part and parcel of having a faith is that you need to put it through the crucible every now and again. And when it comes out, that is what makes your faith stronger. So he not only ha- did his faith develop, but he got a taste for 
just the preciousness of life and living, right? Just standing in a square, looking at a church, looking at the sun. It actually echoes what Gilgamesh said in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where he said, you know, let me be no better than a dead man. Still let me feel the sun on my face, right? Or still let me see the sun and be tired with looking. I mean, those memento mori moments, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We'll do that. Those near-death experiences will refocus the mind. Did he have one of those where he was tied the pole, to the pole and he's like, all right, God, I don't really believe in you, but if you get me out of this, I'm on your team. And then the guy runs in, wait, he is not to be shot. So I read it and I don't think there was any overt like promise to God saying, yeah. I will dedicate my life. I don't, th- <laughs> I don't find any of that anywhere, but it was kind of that same sort of experience yeah. where he just, it shocked him out of whatever it was, was going on. And then he went on to be a, you know, a successful writer and, um, and he wrote some really important books. And we teach one of them in our senior English class. We teach uh, Crime and Punishment, which is about a fella named Raskolnikov that decides he wants to put the philosophy of utilitarianism into practice and see if he can't kill an old woman, take her money, use it to make his good start, and then help a whole bunch of people. And he thinks that because he is going to help, you know, in theory, help a gazillion people after he makes his start, then killing her is worth it, especially because she's kind of terrible mm. anyway, and he's ridding the world of what he calls a louse. Yeah, she's this terrible moneylender, and she sort of preys on people, but she's kind of this sort of nasty person. He says, all right, if I can just kill her, take her money, and like then do good things with the money, it's like a net positive. Right, and people like Napoleon wouldn't even think twice about this, mm. right? Na- Napoleon killed thousands of people to get what he wanted, and he would not think twice about stepping on an old woman and taking her money. And so he wants to know, like the real question is, he's asking himself is, am I Napoleon? Because his theory is that there's, you know, one in 10,000 is a, a great man. One in a million is a Napoleon. And he, he fancies himself a Napoleon. What, is, what makes them a Napoleon or a great man? So they are, they go against society and are willing to champion a value, and they are typically punished for it in right. their era, right? Napoleon was killed, all the great men who make these big, great strides are killed, but then so society's job is to punish them. Their job is to, because they can make great strides forward in society, shun the, the mores of society, make their own choices, do their own thing, and that thereby forwarding society and making progress, but then being killed for it, right? So he fancied himself as one of these people. And then lionized for it in future generations. Exactly. Statues built oh, to them it, down sorry. the line. I was wondering, like, why would he do it if he's expecting, yeah, they're probably going to kill me for this, but it's because he'll be praised later? Praised later and you sort of move the ball forward, whatever and that means. you are a good. great man, right? Okay. He, he would consider himself greater than all of the rest of the millions of rabble <clears throat> that don't follow their own compass, so to speak. He sounds uh, horrible. I don't know. He's not a pleasant person. He spends yeah. most of the book holed up in his, uh, an apartment like a spider, and he's actually very, very bad at murdering. Mm. Like, he thinks, you know, murderers have this, like, feeling of fever right when the act happens, and they can't handle it. And I am a thinker, and I will do so much better. And he does awful. Oh. He takes an axe and bonks the old lady on the head and then accidentally timed it wrong, and so her sister's there, <gasps> her pregnant sister. Oh, no. And so he bonks her and kills her and the kid, and that doesn't seem to bother him so much as intentionally killing the old woman. And then he has all these problems, and... He thinks he's covered in blood when he's not. Oh. And, and like, forgets to take off the bloody pieces of his socks. And, like, there's just... He's just not very good at it. And the rest of the novel is uh, about the rending of his soul because of what he's done. And what it does to a human person when they have committed that great crime. So I want... I don't know. That makes me want to read this book. But you're... What, are you talking about Crime and Punishment today? So that was Crime and Punishment. Uh, I was only intending on talking about that briefly. But now... Yeah. I was going to ask... 
maybe this will come later, but which one you would recommend listeners pick up and read? All of them. Oh, really? Uh, well, like, I mean, you got to start with one. Crime one. and Punishment. Oh, really? Before? I would say K? start with okay. Crime and Punishment. It's a good murder mystery. Well, it's not a mystery. Not really, he you know does it in like the second a, chapter. Yeah, but it's like a good, but then it's this, it's this great story of like his paranoia after the fact. And it's got one of my favorite literary characters of all time, Porphyry, the detective. Oh, he's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there are th- his other book, The Brothers Karamazov, um, or Karamazov, I think is how it's pronounced. Brothers K, man. Brothers K. Yeah. That's the short version of it. It's about a family of uh, the word they use is sensualists. So they come from this father, um, and he he's kind of a horrible human person, yeah. like all together. He's got money, but he, he doesn't want to give his money to his kids. Um, and he, oh man, he just... He drinks a lot. He drinks a lot. He gives himself license to do whatever he wants to do. He hangs out with women of ill repute as much as he possibly can. Like that's all he wants. He wants to cheat everybody. He yeah. doesn't think there are morals. He loves making a spectacle of himself uh, to embarrass other people. He's all around not the kind of guy that you want to hang out with. Um, so he, uh, gives birth to wow three, maybe four kids. How, how did he, wow. cause he gave birth to them. That's just, oh, is this is a Russian thing. Uh, it, times were different <laughs> back then. <laughs> Midwifery was yeah. on the rise. It's a, uh, you know, only a modern thing that <laughs> oh, women are the only ones to give birth. Gotcha. Oh man. Thank I don't know my that. science. I'm only <laughs> yeah, English, I'm teacher. English teacher. All right. So anyway, he has, thank you, Graham. <laughs> he has three, maybe four boys. So he has Three, he's got several wives. I forget which one comes from which. Um, doesn't really matter. The wives aren't that important to the story. But he has, um, and again, I'm probably going to struggle with these names. So he has Ivan, the second son, who's kind of an intellectual. He has Dmitri, also known as Mitya, who is his oldest son, who's kind of like a... Chip off the old block. Yeah, he's kind of a ch- chip off the old block. <laughs> He's he's crazy. Yeah. He's nuts. Yeah. He's he's a he's what in the in the biz we call a bum stoker. He's either bummed or he's stoked. He's like he goes at a hundred percent at everything. And if he's feeling sad, then he goes a hundred percent sad. Mm. If he's drinking, it's to the nth degree. Mm. If he's spending money, he's gonna spend like a crazy person. So there's those two brothers, and then there's Alyosha, Alexei, the youngest son, who ends up in a monastery and he pursues the things of the spirit. So we've got Ivan, the intellectual, the second son. We have Dmitri, the oldest. I'm I'm doing this in weird order. So Dmitri, oldest, uh, he's the bum stoker. And then we have Ivan, the middle son, who's an intellectual. And then we have Alyosha, the kid who's studying to be a priest, right? So that is kind of the backdrop. We have this family. They are all sensualists in their own way. They pursue things of the senses, right? Alyosha pursues things of the spirit. Um, Ivan pursues things of the mind. Dimitri, more things of, the I would appet- say, the appetites. appetite. And I, I hesitate to relate this to the tripartite soul. Uh, Dostoevsky would certainly have known about this. And I read a paper where they assumed this was how they had designed the brothers, right? Each huh. one was a piece of the tripartite soul. One after mind, one after appetite, one after spirit. But I'm not sure that's entirely true. It's not overt, and the characters are really complex to... Of course you don't think that's entirely true. You hate, like, theories like that. No, I think it's a, I think it's a really good way to understand his characters, and he certainly could have built them that way and showed the, the excesses of each of those problems, right? What comes of having too much of one or the other? And the fourth son is actually an interesting study of this because he almost refuses all three pieces and mm-hmm. says, I am non-human. Uh, but I think to say that is what they are and nothing else is perhaps a reduction of 
the, the works and the characters and the yeah. complexity of the characters. Um, so the fourth son, uh, Smerdyakov, we always called him Smirnov because <laughs> his name is just so impossible to say. His, this is his full name, Pavel Fyodorovich Smerdyakov. Of course it is. Yeah, it's, it's impossible. So yeah. he was maybe the son of the dad, and his... He was like the bastard child, right? Yeah. Yes. So there's this woman named Stinking Lizaveta. Yep. And Stinking Lizaveta is this. She's homeless. And she's homeless. She's kind of a simpleton. And every time she, she's given money, she gives it away. Right. And people take care of her sometimes right. out of pity. And uh, she's she's a very sympathetic character. And she ends up just dying one night because I think wasn't it that somebody beat her up or something? I don't remember. Did she oh, give man. birth? Terrible. Before that. She gives yeah. Birth and then so okay. the the rumor is that the father Fyodor. Um, Pavlovich Karamazov, that's yeah. the dad, Fyodor, Fyodor uh, that he was joking with some friends one night, and they're like, what if somebody did that with her? And so he stayed behind yeah. and did that, and that's where her, you know, his his fourth son, Smerdyakov, came from. So Smerdyakov doesn't ever really get the inheritance. He stays in the home as a servant. Yeah. He is raised by one of Fyodor's other servants, and he is kind of a pseudo intellectual. He likes to think he's really smart, but he just kind of takes impressions from Ivan. He He's kind of a hanger-on. And that's why I say that he kind of refuses all the pieces, right? He doesn't take things for himself. He doesn't seem interested in things of the appetite. He only gathers impressions. He doesn't think through anything for himself. So he's not really going for the mind. Mm -hmm. He's not very spirited. He bows out of everything. He never really takes a stand on anything. This is Smerdyakov, right? He's almost the opposite of the other three brothers, right? And while Crime and Punishment isn't a murder mystery because it's very clear who's the murderer, this one kind of is a murder mystery, and we only find out fairly near the end of the book what happened, right? In the first few pages, it's like, Fyodor's going to die, yeah. and then he doesn't actually die until about midway, and then it goes on. So it basically follows the four brothers. Do we need a spoiler warning? Are you going to ruin anything? Uh, I might in the end, but right. not yet. Okay. So it's going to follow these four brothers as they change. And, and what I want to focus on is perhaps one of the... It, it's the most famous chapter or series of chapters in the books, and it's where Ivan is getting to know Alyosha. The brothers don't really spend that much time together when they're young. Some are off in boarding school. So, like, it's just they're not very close. And so Alyosha wants to get to know his brother, Ivan. And Ivan is a skeptic. Uh, at one point, he produces a paper in front of a one of the father monks that pretty much says like if there is no god everything is permissible there is no morals we are all unhinged and uh Smerdyakov hears all this and actually argues that there are no morals even though for ivan it's kind of a lark right mm-hmm. he's like kind of arguing it even though he doesn't really believe in it so they sit down over some some ales and ivan says i am going to give you what i believe or what i don't believe and he never really Says what he believes. Says whether or not he believes there is a God, right. but he does does give criticisms of God. And again, you know, for our non-Christian listeners, I th- this is again going to going to focus on something kind of overtly Christian. But it's it is the most important and popular passage in the book. It's whenever you say, "Hey, the brothers K," this is kind of where they go. They go to this piece, which is the central crux. And for uh, Dostoevsky, this would have also been sort of the central crux, right? This was the thing everybody worried about. It's the thing everybody wanted to talk about. This is kind of a big piece of the book. So I'm going to present Ivan's criticism of Christianity as as best I can. Um, it's going to be hard for me to do it really well, partially just because 
he does it when he's been drinking. Right. And the, I'm serious. There are no paragraph breaks. Nope. Like I'm looking at three or four pages here with nary a paragraph. Um, and so it's kind of like he is ranting. And whenever you capture somebody's rant about what they believe, it's going to wander. It's going to be all over the place. He's almost frantic. He's yelling. And so I cannot convey this as well as perhaps you would get it reading the book. Um, but he begins in the chapter right before the Grand Inquisitor, which is the, the most important chapter, with a chapter called Rebellion. And this is sort of the beginning criticism, is that he says, children suffer, and that alone should be enough to say that God doesn't exist. Or if he, he, he does, some, he's cruel. He goes into some pretty like uh, uh, detailed examples of yeah. like, ways specific children have been punished. Things that happen in wars. Yeah. And, like, and I want to say that they're true stories. That yeah. Just it's, he's using things that actually happen in the real world. Yeah, there's one where he talks about this fella named Richard that grew up, was given to a family almost as a slave. They sent him out to take care of the pigs. They never taught him. They never fed him. They never did anything for him. They treated him like material. And he ended up killing someone. And then as... He was sitting in jail waiting to be executed. He became a, a Christian, a believer, and was like, I'm going to your my, my death, and what a great day for me. This is the best day of my life. And then as he's going, all of the other Christian Russians say, like, go, brother, you die for us. And they don't give him mercy. They right. whack off his head, even though he didn't know anything. He was abused from childhood. He was not taught. And when he was, you know, finally ended up shedding blood, he went and learned something, and then they still kill him for the thing that, like, is absolutely not his fault. So that's the first picture. The second one is, or one of them is a little girl who is forced because she couldn't hold her bladder when she slept uh, to go and spend all night in an outhouse after being smeared in her own feces and being forced to eat it by her mother. Um, and she's, like, crying and weeping because she's five years old and she doesn't understand what's happening to her and there's no way she could control that, Right. He goes on that one. He talks about another boy who I think I think the reason he was got in trouble is because he hit a hound with a rock, hmm. and the lord that was in charge of this ended up hunting the kid and having him torn apart by torn apart by his dogs in front of his mother. And that's a lot. That's a lot to handle. But why is how does he conclude that therefore God doesn't exist? So Shouldn't here, you conclude that people are jackwagons? Uh, but that's kind of the point. So yeah. let me read this. Um, uh, can you understand that a small creature who cannot even comprehend what is being done to her, this is the girl that was in the outhouse, in a vile place, in the dark and the cold, beats herself on her st strained little chest with her tiny fists and weeps with her anguished, gentle, meek tears for dear God to protect her? Can you understand such nonsense, my friend and my brother, my godly and humble novice? Can you understand why this nonsense is needed and created? Without it, they say, man could not even have lived on earth, for he would not have known good and evil. Who wants to know this... Uh, Darned, I'll say darned, it's the other word. Yeah. Darned good and evil at such a price. The whole world of knowledge is not worth the tears of that little child to dear God. Um, I'm not talking about the suffering of grown-ups. They ate the apple and to hell with them. Let the devil take them all. But these little ones, I'm tormenting you, Alyoshka. You don't look yourself. I'll stop if you wish. So the theologian would argue that good and evil and suffering are are needed for us to know good and evil, are needed for us for, you know, some of the the ends of the divine. But his point is that, yeah, but these are kids. Like they didn't do anything. They're not complicit. And if your world design requires that a five-year-old spend all night in an outhouse smeared in her own feces, is it worth it? And he asks his brother later, uh, let's see if I can um, find the spot. Um, he basically says, would you, 
would you have created this? Uh, oh, yeah, right here. Um, one cannot live by rebellion, and I want to live. Tell me straight out. I call on you. Answer me. Imagine that you yourself are building the edifice of human destiny with the object of making people happy in the finale, of giving them peace and rest at last. But for that, you must inevitably and unavoidably torture just one tiny creature, that same child who was beating her chest with her little fist, and raise your edifice on the foundation of her unrequited tears. Would you agree to be the architect on such conditions? Tell me the truth. And Alyosha says, no. Like, if, if I was building a world with the aim of making men happy in, in the end, and to do that, I had to torture a tiny five-year-old girl, I would not do it. And so his point is that the whatever the ends are, whatever God's ends in creating the world are, they require that children undergo torture and pain. And whatever it is, it's not commensurate to what's going on. And it, doesn't, like, it doesn't require. It doesn't require it. Can you say more? Oh, it's just it's Well, let's let's get to the answers in a little while. I have to I have to go all the way. So he also says, "Listen, if everyone must suffer in order to buy eternal harmony with their suffering, pray tell me what have children got to do with it? It's quite incomprehensible that they should have to suffer. And why should they buy harmony with their suffering? Why do they get thrown on the pile to manure someone else's future harmony with themselves?" Um while there's still time, I hasten to defend myself against it, and therefore I absolutely renounce all higher harmony. And then here, I'd rather remain with my unrequited suffering and my unquenched indignation, even if I am wrong. Besides, they have put too high a price on harmony. We can't afford to pay so much for admission, and therefore I hasten to return my ticket. If I'm not, if it, it's not that I don't accept God, Alyosha, I just most respectfully return the ticket. So I get what he's doing, and he even talks about, yes, the mother, the mother of the child that was torn apart by the, apart by the dogs. She can... For like the kid can forgive the man, right? She can forgive the kid. She can forgive the dogs, but how can how can she, in her right mind, forgive the torture of her son? Like he says, and what's more, she shouldn't. She should never forgive that man for torturing her son. The son and the man may be reunited in heaven, but how dare she, right? How dare she forgive him? And that and that's his point, right? Is that the suffering of children is not commensurate with whatever ends. God has. All right, so that is only the, the first chapter. And then he, like, that's not even the biggest crux of it. Right. Um, and then he goes on, and and I will try to summarize this as best I can. It's a, it's a lot of sort of ranting. But the next piece he says, look, I, I composed this poem, which is funny because he's an amateur, and he says, like, you'll, you'll be my first listener. But he never even, sorry, listener, but he never even gives the poem. poem right. He sort he of says, here's what I was going to write, but he never wrote it. And, and it sort of evokes Ivan as this pseudo-intellectual where he has a lot of big ideas, but he doesn't affect them ever. He just sort of toys with them. So the poem goes like this. So during the height of the Inquisition, Jesus comes back, and it's not his triumphant return. He's not coming with blaze and fire. He's not destroying anything or anybody. He comes back and he's checking in. He just wants to visit. And so on the day when they've just burned a thousand heretics, he walks through and everybody knows that it's him. Every person in that whole square is like, that's Jesus. He heals a guy of his blindness. He raises a girl from her, her death. And then the inquisitor comes out and he's like a 90 year old man with still glittering eyes. And he says, guards, take him. So the guards take Jesus they put him in jail. And the inquisitor comes and he says, it's, it's you, isn't it? It is you. 
all right, well, don't speak. Here's what I have to say. And he accuses Jesus of some things. And it all centers around the temptation in the desert. And he takes the... The temptations of Christ by the devil. Yeah. He takes these things to mean a little bit different than we took them to mean. So the first temptation, the temptation of bread, right? We all understand that to mean that Satan was like, here, have some well, bread. Let's just run through the temptations because people so may not know. So first temptation is that uh, Jesus had been in the desert for 40 days. And so Satan comes, hey, like you hungry man, turn these stones into bread. And then Jesus says, men nope. cannot live by bread alone, right? And then uh, the next the one is he says, uh, yeah, he takes him to the top of the temple and he says, see all of these lands, right? Uh, throw yourself off. Is it throw yes. yourself off first? Yeah, okay, so he says, chuck yourself off this and the angels will all come and save you and won't that be amazing and there'll be a big miracle and he pretty much says no. And then he says, if you bow down to me, I will give you all of the nations that you can see, right? Because clearly I'm in charge. And Jesus says, no. Says, yeah, get out of here. Yeah. Get behind me. So uh, that's not where he says get behind me. It's where he says... Right, right. He that's, says, that's um, a, he's saying that to Peter later. Um, he says, what does he say? Um, basically, Satan in all three, is quoting scripture at him in all three of the, the temptations, and Christ quotes scripture back, um, essentially telling Satan that he is um, misquoting scripture. And then the last one, yeah, he just basically tells Satan to buzz off. Yeah. yeah. So the Inquisitor says, look, when, you, when he offered you bread... What you could have done was taken bread and given it to everyone. He assumes that the temptation is not for Christ himself, but that he could turn everything into bread and provide for man. Give him, give him something tangible to eat. Um, and yeah, you would have, what is it? Had you accepted the loaves, you would have answered the universal and everlasting anguish of man as an individual being and of the whole of mankind together, namely, before whom shall I bow down? There is no more ceaseless or tormenting care for man as long as he remains free than to find someone to bow down to as soon as possible, right? One of the, like, bread is tangible. It will feed you. And so if he would have said, yes, I will prov provide bread for man, they would have followed you to the ends of the earth, right? Man would have followed you for sure, but you didn't. You wanted man free. You promised bread in heaven. And the only people that can get, get after bread in heaven are the strong ones, maybe tens of thousands, right? But then there's hundreds of thousands and millions that because they don't have bread cannot follow you and are not strong enough to follow someone if they're not taking care of their needs. You didn't take care of their needs, that therefore they they are not going to follow you, right? And that's the charge and so the inquisitor says that is the charge one of the first charge I have against you. The first charge is that you didn't provide for their needs and you didn't give them someone to follow. You had the power to do it and you didn't do it. You had the power to do it, you you absolutely didn't do it. Um, with bread, you are given an indisputable banner. Give man bread and he will bow down to you, for there is nothing more indisputable than bread. But if at the same time someone else takes over his conscience, oh, then he will even throw down your bread and follow him who has seduced his conscience. In this you are right. For the mystery of man's being is not only in living, but in what one lives for. Basically, men, men are too weak to handle their freedom. What they need is bread. They need someone to follow. You didn't give that to them. You didn't provide for their needs. They don't have someone to follow. And so only the strong can follow you. Well, what about the rest of them? Um, the next piece is uh, the, the miracle of throwing himself off. So he says, you did not come down because, again, you did not want to enslave man by a miracle and thirsted for faith that is free, not miraculous. You thirsted for love that is free and not for the servile raptures of a slave before a power that has left him permanently terrified. But here, you, here too, you overestimated mankind. For, of course, 
They are slaves, though they were created rebels. Behold and judge, now that 15 centuries have passed, take a look at them. Whom have you raised up to yourself? I swear man is created weaker and baser than you thought him. How can he ever accomplish the same thing as you? So you did not give him the mystery that he needed. Um, he cannot choose you freely, right? Man, man is feeble and only the strongest can follow you, right? Without a miracle. They need some sort of miracle to follow. And without you, they will follow something else. They're going to follow women. They're going to follow a wizard. They're going to follow anything else that can offer them this power to follow. Um, and you didn't give it. The last one is unity, right? Exact, uh, let's see. Exactly eight centuries ago, we took from him what you so indignantly rejected. And that him there, they're referring to Satan. That last gift he offered when, you showed, when he showed you all the kingdoms of the earth, we took Rome and the sword of Caesar from him and proclaimed ourselves sole rulers of the earth. And the inquisitor is speaking for the church here. The only rulers, though we have not yet succeeded in bringing our cause to its full fruition. Um, for the need for universal union is the third and last torment of men. Mankind in its entirety has always yearned to arrange things so that they must be universal. And that's the last accusation, is that we needed unity. And you, you didn't the, give it. You, you had the power to end all this suffering. You had the wars. power to say, look, I'm in charge. I, am, I will provide for your needs. I will give you a miracle. And I will give you unity and, and join all of you forever. And instead, what you did is you gave them freedom. And this horrible freedom, and this is, this is the, best, the, the biggest accusation, it is too much for man, right? You expect too much from us. Men are small, we are petty, we cannot follow, we are too weak. And in refusing these to do these three things, give us bread, give us miracle, and give us unity, you have condemned us all. And so the church, and, the, and still this is the inquisitor speaking, the church has done this for you. We have taken your banner and we, yes, we are lying to them. We are going to take their freedom from them and promise them freedom in return and not give it. But they will give, but we'll give them bread, we give them miracle, we give them unity, and that's nothing, not what you could give them. And so he says, like, what do you say to this? And Jesus kisses him on the mouth, and then I think he exiles him. I think he just says, get out of town, you. I thought, I, yeah, I, 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 I thought Jesus walks him? out. No, he, he kisses him on the mouth, and then Jesus leaves the room, and then... Yeah, Jesus, like, takes off. In Inquisitor tells him not to return. Yeah. 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 So mm -hmm. kind of exiles he, mm -hmm. he essentially exiles him. So the Inquisitor aligns himself with... Satan and says, we have unified the world and yes, we will suffer for it, but how many hundreds of thousands will be saved because we give them bread and unity. And so miracle. we've taken the deal that you gave up. Yeah. Now, or we're working towards the deal that you gave up and I can, and I, I condemn you for the fact that you didn't take up this deal. It was a good deal when Satan offered it. So you should have done it. Yeah. So to review one big, uh, argument is that whatever, Whatever God's ends are, it is not worth the suffering of these children, right? He might be there, but I, I'm going to return my ticket. And also that God did not provi provide what weak man needed. He needed bread. He needed something to believe in and to follow. And he needed unity with his fellow men. And you gave none of those three things. And because man is too weak, you have condemned us all. Um, that is the argument. And it is one that, like, it kind of borders on ones I've heard before, Right, the problem of evil, like if God is good, then why is the world bad? Is a very simplistic way to put the the first argument about the children. Um, the second one, I've I've had like everyone kind of feels it, but no one's put it into words that men are too weak to follow. Um, and then 
this troubled... So to, to step back from the argument for a sec, this really troubled Dostoevsky's publishers. Mm. They're like, they got uh. the chapter, and it was published in serial, um, which is one of the reasons it's so long, I yeah. think. Right, if you're going to publish it and get paid every time you publish something, like you're going to make a long book. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're like, are you going to answer this? <laughs> like, you give this whole thing, and are you really going to take care of it? And he said he would take care of it artistically. And so the way that he solves this is by giving us the picture of Zosima the Elder, who's a great spiritual man, and basically says, like, we are all guilty before all. You must love everyone. You must sacrifice for their needs and for the earth. And Alyosha takes up this torch and basically spends the entire novel sacrificing himself for everyone else. Ivan ends up having brain fever because he was kind of complicit in his father's death. I'm not going to tell you whether he was the actual murderer or not. I can leave that up, you know, up to whatever. But he was implicated. He, he had a hand in it, whether he wanted to or not. And he ends up hallucinating the devil and dealing with these questions even more and then lapsing into brain, brain fever. And he might die at the end of the novel. And then Alyosha ends with this beautiful idyllic picture where he's, they've just buried one of the boys, right? One of the children. And it has ended in him kind of commiserating with all the boys in the town and saying like, we are having this great day. This is a great moment. We can all look, look back on this and have a moment of purity that could counteract an entire lifetime of evil. So that's how he kind of does it artistically. He doesn't answer it directly. Jesus's answer is just a kiss on the lips. And then the answer we see in Alyosha and Zosima, who are good men and then end in this beautiful picture where saying like small pieces of good can counteract whole worlds of bad. So that's, that is like, I think the central pivoting point uh, of the brothers Karamazov. Mm -hmm. So gentlemen, thoughts. You were jumping at it, Graham. So what do you got? Um, well, the, just the first thing where he says that, where he gives Alyosha that choice where he says, all right, Alyosha, if you were building a world and you could have um, a world of everybody created, but you had to torture one little kid to do it, would you do it? And Alyosha says no. And it's kind of a false choice because the world God created did not necessitate the need of sin and evil. It, um, it was a choice. Uh, it was it was an option. Um, presumably, the option. Presumably, uh, the way it was set up, mankind could have continued to turn the world into a garden, which is what our job was supposed to be. Um, we could have, uh, uh, you know, can, uh, filled the earth and subdued it like we were asked to, while every day not succumbing to the temptation of the fruit. So I mean, like, it was possible. But I'm I'm going to play the devil's advocate here, l literally. Mm -hmm. And and say that I feel like that's a cop-out because our, our fall did not surprise God. That was not a whoops. The, the tree was in the garden for a reason. And just because Adam and Eve fell, does that necessitate that every single one of their progeny have the same curse? But we were, we were sufficient to stand, though free to fall, is a line that Milton uses. And that's the problem, free to fall. Yeah. And, he, and, and Dostoevsky makes the same point that one of my friends, Dane Newland, I doubt you're listening, but if you are, hey, buddy, <laughs> I, he had walked away from the faith and... He, we were talking about free will, and I said, I would rather have all the evil in the world and my free will. And he said, why? I would much rather know that I'm going to heaven and lose my free will every second of it. Like, I, if I had the assurance of heaven, I would lose my free will in a heartbeat. And that's, that's, I think, his point. Yeah, yeah, we're free to fall. But God created a world in which we were free, in which he knew we would fall. That was not a surprise to him. He could have created a different world in which we didn't. But that world would have had no free will. And therefore, that world would not have had love, and therefore, that world would not—he would not have been giving his creatures the ability to freely love God. So it would be a world—it would be a 
I mean, if loving God is is is, is to love is to uh, glorify God or love God and enjoy Him forever, the chief end of man, um, uh, then He would be creating a universe where that couldn't have happened. So again, we would be love robots. I will play devil's advocate. Does it necessitate that we actually sin, or simply that we have the possibility of it for love to exist? Because love exists in the Trinity. Those three could, in theory. Sin. They are free to do so. They are although, free to do so. Although sin would mean neg- a negation of nature, so I'm not even sure if that's true. Right? God's nature is to do good, and whatever he does is good. So can he sin is a different question. But love exists there. Mm-hmm. Love will presumably exist in heaven where there is no sin. So is sin necessary for love? It, is sin necessary for love? No, free will is necessary for love. Then he could have created a world in which free will existed with no sin. Um, no, because there was there's... There's always the option of not doing the thing that we should be doing. Right. So but the, the free presumably will. he could have created a world that he knew where we would choose to continue to do the right thing. He created a world in which he knew we wouldn't. No, 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 no. How could he create a world? How could he create a world of free will? Are we without, free in possi- without possibility of? What I'm saying is that the possibility is there, but he could have created a world in which we didn't eat the fruit. I. If we hold to the free will argument, we have to posit that the possibility of sitting is still open in heaven. That's a fun one, first of all. And sure, but my, my, point, my point is that the actuality of sin is not necessary for the possibility of sin. He could have created a world in which the tree was always there. Mm-hmm. We always had free will. We always had, had the option. But he knew that we never would. No, no, no. Explain that world. How can he create a world and say the tree is always here and you have free will, but we never eat it? Uh, It's a choice. We don't have agency. Graham had made a different choice. Isn't that what But but he doesn't doesn't force our hand. Sure, but Graham... You're you're saying humans could have acted differently. You're saying Adam and Eve... He could have created a world in which Adam... Like, he creates the same kind of world, but he creates one in which Adam and Eve don't make that silly mistake. He warns them against the snake. He He comes down at the moment the snake is talking to him and says, hey, don't listen to this fool. He's an idiot. I'm God. I created you. Make the right choice. Easy. For example, you have the option to abuse students. Sure. You never will, ideally. Sure. Is there another world in which you do? Maybe. But my point is that you have your free will. Mm -hmm. You still don't do it. So we can have free will and not actually the the actuality of sin. But the possibility of it. The possibility of it. That's my point. But that was the world he created. And that is the world we're in and now. And that is the world that Ivan has a problem with. No, 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 no. He created a world of a possibility of sin. He did not create a world of an actuality of sin. We created the world of the actuality of sin when he we sinned. He created a world in which he knew, because he has foreknowledge, that we would affect sin. We did it. He knew we would. I'm saying he could have created a world where we had the possibility, but he knew that we would not. Like heaven. No. You cannot have free will unless you actually and then you do cannot it. have free will and a determined outcome. You can't do it. So, uh, so we're getting. I, I feel like we're getting too far into the weeds of free will here because then we immediately have to ask the question: Was our sinning a determined outcome? And if God knew that it was, you just said it. You just said it was. Sure, I, I'm. I'm a good Calvinist. Uh, I believe in foreknowledge. Bless you. Uh, so, but but so that that like it is required for free will. Like we we immediately get into really big questions about 
like God's intentions creating a world in which sin existed or, or was going to exist. He did not create the sin and is there, therefore not necessarily complicit in it, right? But he, he allowed us to, certainly. And he created a world in which he knew that we would. Um, so those are those would probably be Ivan's answers. Yeah, so I mean, Ivan, Ivan is more comfortable in a world where mankind is not free, mankind does not have love, mankind does not have the capacity to... Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you, you can, don't, you can be not free and still have love. No, you can't. You can't. Why not? Because you need. Because love is a choice. Real love is a choice. You can't be forced to love. And if you're forced so, to love, it's again, not love. we come back to my point about heaven. Right? It's a place where no sin exists, yet we still love and have free will. So he could have created that world. Why didn't he just create heaven in the first place? Um, no, no, because there was. I mean, he did, and someone did fall, and it was Satan fell. So presumably, so in. Explain to me how heaven is a place where there is love and free will, but no, no. Uh, uh, I feel like that's incumbent upon you. <laughs> you, you are saying both free will and love exist in heaven. Yes, is that true? Both love and free will exist in heaven. Because because yes. you're saying love mm-hmm. cannot exist without free will, therefore Correct. free will must happen in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yet there is no sin. Um, there is the possibility for it. There is the possibility of sin. Why didn't God just create that world in the first place? He did. And then but the he didn't. He created happened. one in which he knew we would sin. And I don't want to go over this again. Created both, again. right? Created heaven and earth is what you're right, saying. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think my answer would be different, right? So yes, that is that is a piece of the puzzle that God did want to give us free will. So my my answer is twofold, and it even comes out in the brothers K. Uh, the first answer is that I think Ivan is weighing too heavily the sufferings of of man. Um, later in the book, he talks about a supposition where a guy ends up having to walk a quadrillion miles before he can go to heaven. He has to just, he has a quadrillion years, years to do it. takes him forever, um, but he does it. And then the m- five minutes in heaven, he's like, I would have done it quadrillion to the power of quadrillion. It's worth every moment of my walking and everyone. And he, he goes a little overboard. And everyone's like, Ooh, who's this guy? And so there's, that's the joke is that he kind of goes a little overboard. But I think if we look like here, our suffering weighs very heavily on the scale because we know nothing else. Um, I think the amount of, of joy and goodness found in heaven will more than make up for that weight on the scale, right? It's a, it's a longevity problem. We're looking too short. It's where, it's like the, I want the cookie thing. I cannot deal with the suffering now, so I want to eat the cookie even though my mom says if I can wait an hour, I'll have 10. Mm right? This small suffering weighs so heavily on me that I must take care of it now. And so I think that it's, it is weighing uh, far, far too heavily on the scale. My other answer is that, yes, while it is a problem, why didn't, why didn't God do something? My answer is that he did, right? As if, if we look at God as a timeless being, the moment that he knew we would sin was also the moment that he was dying for it and the moment that he was returning to cleanse the world of it. So it's, it's, it's a problem that's already been solved. And yes, we have to live through it, but... Yeah, so so the Grand Inquisitor's second second demand on Jesus is already bunk. Like, you could have given us a miracle. Well, he did. He was risen from the dead. Yeah, so I I, so I was talking more about the, the children, but if we want to tackle the Grand Inquisitor, so those are my kind of two answers to the, the children. Yes, we suffer, um, but it does bring free will and, and a lot of things that come along with suffering and sin, personal growth, uh, camaraderie, like there's a lot of things that come from sin that we that that we wouldn't know otherwise. Um, also, I think the goodness is going to weigh heavier on the scale than we think it will. We tend as humans to suffer to think of the problems. Like if we've had a great day, 
with one really bad experience, we're going to focus on the bad, right? So it weighs heavier than it should, um, and it's a pro- problem that's solved. But if we're talking about the the Grand Inquisitor, I think there are answers to each of those that are relatively simple. So first, first accusation, you didn't create bread, you didn't provide for our needs. So do we have an answer to that? Didn't give some, men something to follow because bread is the most tangible thing. Uh, I don't have a specific answer. Uh, sorry, I was just thinking, the Grand Inquisitor, is, isn't this chapter more a critique of the church than it is of Christ? It feels like the, w- the way you just walked through it, it feels like he's the lo- the thing he's saying is the church is making a, the church wants a deal with the devil, um, but but a deal with the devil that takes care of the millions of people that aren't strong enough to live a life of freedom and yeah. genuineness, a, li- a life of total free will, which is what Christ wanted. Of. I think it is a direct accusation of Christ and doubt of in the, of the Christian faith. In this one, the the church almost comes out looking like the good guy. Yes, they must align themselves with the devil to do it, but they save the people who are too weak to save themselves. Well, I mean, that's that's the problem I have with it is right. the low view of human right. that we are weak and stupid and excuse me, can't um, can't fend for ourselves. Um, um, the answer for the first one would be that um, we were placed in an environment where like food can grow like like mm. we were not placed in a pl- in an environment where we cannot survive we were placed in an environment where we can um and the fact that we don't comes down to man being how we use that jerks to man right. um but it but mm-hmm. it, but the capacity the potential for all of us to be fed and have our needs met is here and we have the potential, like, because we don't all have bread, we have the potential for charity. We mm-hmm. have the potential for working together, right, to make that happen. Like, if he had just provided for our needs, I mean, I think there's a, like there's something to be said for entitlement, right? If he had provided for every need that we had, does an entitled kid follow his father fearlessly? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, there's there's that piece of it. and So it's wrong to say that if... If Christ had given food to everyone that they would have followed. I think so, maybe. And I also think that, like, the accusation that he didn't give us something to follow is demonstrably hogwash. Right. Right. Maybe, yes, that we have a hard time with the freest of wills, but, like, that the on- only the strong can follow Jesus, I think that that's not borne out in churches either. I actually find that the strong-willed are usually the, one who, the ones who usually walk away, and it is the weak and those people who are in dire need and those who are in poverty that turn most readily to, to God. Yeah, I feel like there's got to be something about the Eucharist here of like the bread that Christ does provide a bread, but it's his body. It's not merely literal loaves of bread. Well, that's well, what that's, he says. He says, you you promised a heavenly bread, but yeah. we need earthly bread. Like we need, I need a full loaf of bread to eat for sandwiches, not just the the bread of future heaven, which only the strong can wait for. Yeah, but I'm saying like even in the weekly Sunday church, you're given a physical Food and I know now we use like little wafers, and it's not enough to even get you past lunchtime. But it, it is the symbol that um, the Grand Inquisitor says he's not providing is given to the church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. But then again, we're we're pulling the church back into it, which which is the other thing is the Grand Inquisitor says like we give the people what you weren't willing to. Well, that's what Christ gave. And the truth is, like if the church is the body of Christ, wow. 
they, they, like Christ is giving it. He's giving it through us. We are involved in the salvific work of the gospel, right? There's, it's not that he left and, oh, the job wasn't done, so we're going to have to do it separate from him. That's not how it works. He left us a job to do and said, you guys need to feed each other. You guys need to take care of each other. And he talked a lot about that, caring for the poor, caring for the homeless, caring for people who needed it, the widows and orphans, right? What is pure Christianity? And like, that's what he told us. And so what the Inquisitor should have said is, we have carried the mantle. It's not that we are going against you or what you refuse to do. We carried on the work you gave us. Yep. And as far as not giving us miracles, well... He gave them. He gave plenty he gave of them. them. Yeah. And giving unity, I think that the church has been a unifying force for a long time. And yeah, there's there's always some infighting and stuff, but... Uh, it's not maybe, not, maybe not universal unity. I mean, the, the story of the church is the story of, like deep fragmentation over time. <laughs> like on the one hand is, is, is God's kingdom continuing to march forth with the gospel and the spirit entering the hearts and minds and transforming individual lives. But then institutionally, it is a fragmenting body um, um, where, you know, we, we started with the, you know, the church in Acts and then over now we have like what, 600 Christian denominations in the United States and three major expressions of Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and uh, um, and, and Protestantism, Protestants. and even Protestantism, it is not a uniform thing. It is this. I know. So it's like, um, it's like very divine and human in that way, right? Like you've got the unifying message of the gospel, and then and I always, whenever we travel, whenever my wife and I travel, and we go to a different city and we go to a church and we meet Christians. We had this experience when we lived in Holland and there was just this feeling of like, oh my goodness, you have, like the, you come across as Christy. The way that other people, you know, like it was, you, we are family and I can tell that mm. even though we're different cultures, cool. different language, but there is just this. So there is a unity. There is a unity there. But then on the other hand, there's also, um, there is also the, uh, uh, the disunity of, 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 yeah, all the denominations and all the fighting and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, no, there, so. And, and I mean, are we any more disunified than a state? No, no. Like, no, no. We're, we're at least more lasting than many of them. True. So, I mean, what, the Christian church has been around longer than probably any state on earth? Yeah. Doesn't it have to be true? Yes. Well, I mean, uh, Rome? I was going to say Rome still technically exists, but not... Not, it's not in it's the, not same, the same. Yeah, it's not the same kind of party. Anyway, uh, like taken taken as a whole, I think the Inquisitor is a little short sighted, right? He sees himself as separate from Christ rather than taking on the work of Christ. Yeah, and I was just looking up while you were um, all talking about that. Even his second one about if you had done miracles, people would have the God um, him being God would be cemented. But even in Acts, when Pentecost is happening, people think that they're drunk as they're speaking. Like what? Miracles do not always bring people to the faith. Yeah, yeah. Jesus not falling and like surviving, and the angels coming down and seeing the multitude of angels is not going to like cause generations over a thousand years to continuously like yeah. believe in this thing. But I think the yeah the main crux is that he says you didn't do this for everyone. You gave us a choice. You gave us freedom, and we are too like that's that is the big deal is that we are too weak for freedom. And I think that's kind of underselling man as a whole. Yeah. And 
It, just, it makes me think of the classical education thing we just a high the high view of man. Yeah, yeah, like this this is such a low view of man to say that the only thing that motivates us is food and that we are too weak to make our own decisions. So we need like the big boys to, to do it to, for to us. Do it for but us. like the when when you read the um, the ancients, they don't look at it that way. Like when there's the portrayal of the heroes in the Iliad and the Odyssey, like you might not be born with the same favor of the gods as those people, but like you can still mirror aspects of what they're doing mm-hmm. in your daily life. I, I don't know. I just see, yeah. The low view of man is the thing I just keep thinking of over and over. I think there is something to be said for dealing with your mortality and your existence in a way that is honest. And, and a lot of people don't deal with it. Like they, but, but in that way, I think that God has provided or Jesus provided a refuge from that. Like people who have trouble dealing honestly with their existential crises and maybe even never, never even had one, right? They were, born warmly into the church and stayed warmly in the church until they died and never had to deal with that. And, that, and that's my point is that, yeah, there are the strong who have these deal with these big existential questions, but sometimes that leads them away from the faith. And the faith is often a refuge for people who just don't operate at that level. You know, I don't know. What, what is Dostoevsky's view of, is this his argument? Are these his problems with the I th- faith? I this think is probably him before his conversion. Yeah. This is probably the, the, that was probably convincing to him as a young socialist uh, revolutionary. Okay. Right. I, I think this was the honest doubts of Dostoevsky. And then the only way that he could refute them in his book was to show us the life, the life of uh, Alyosha, who lived well and honestly and sacrificed himself for everyone that he possibly could and ended in this wonderful place laughing with children and Ivan, who dealt with these big doubts and lived primarily for himself, ended with brain fever hallucinating the devil, um, who was also, by the way, sort of a manifestation of these questions, mm-hmm. hounding him and, and taunting him and making fun of him. So That's also interesting that Alyosha is rewarded for that good behavior. He is not punished for it. Because mm-hmm. I think that would be the more, I don't know, probably the even more modern take would be that he is um, noble and he does the right thing, but is then killed for it. Um, but, yeah. It's good to know, I don't know, Brothers K. I guess the tension I'm having is like, so there's there's maybe some virtue to going through and asking hard questions, but like not everyone is ready for them. That mm-hmm. was the thing that you just said. Yeah. So in a way that it's not always a good thing just to ask hard questions for the sake of hard questions. Um, but Dostoevsky's kind of doing both. He brings it up, but then provides an answer for it. Sort of. He's, a yeah. lot of people weren't satisfied with his really? answer. Yeah. They were mad when the book came out. I mean, he never answers it overtly, and many people didn't draw the, like, they, they weren't there enough enough with it to draw the conclusions and, and think through his answer. And his answer is artistic more than logical. Yeah. Um, and I, I, we were talking about that the other night when we finished this book, and some, you know, the dialectical method, we were talking about this last podcast, you keep on asking questions and eventually nothing's there. You can ask, what is a good man, and tear apart what a good man is until you and at nothing. Right. One of the best answers to that is, well, I know what when I see it. And most, most all of us can point at a good man they've known and say, this was a good man. This is a good person. And that is Alyosha and uh, Zosima in the book. They are very clearly good people that have a good influence on the people around them. Yeah. And that, that's his answer is like, you can ask questions and you can get into these logical problems and have issues and do like we did and talk about free will and heaven. And is there love possible when really we know good men when we see them? And this is the, 
belief in sections of Catholicism, but in Eastern, Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy that, I mean, Zosima in the book, his body does not corrupt after death. Mm. So uh, when he, it actually does. Oh, it does at the end? That, that's the thing that the, a lot of the... I thought it didn't. Pre- oh, it totally does. It's been a long a time lot of the priests were expecting the miracle of right. him smelling sweet after death, but he started to stink. And so they're like, he must have been a liar all along. And they immediately <laughs> wow. conclude that everything he taught was lies because he stunk after he died. Wow. I kid you not. No, it's this big, goofy thing. He doesn't. He obviously doesn't have a very high view of uh, the monkhood. Right. That's really but, good. But my point was that, like, that is part of the the that nature reflects the spiritual goodness of individuals because their bodies do not corrupt after death. Now, I know that's a wacky, crazy Protestants probably, you know, we, that is not something that we definitely, is something that we sort of adhere to, but it's out there and there are, you know, um, the incorruptible saints out there, you know, you're saying there, there are some bodies, some bodies that have not decomposed. That's, that is the that is the claim. Yeah, sure. There right. are you know Catherine of Siena, Siena. That's what and, I was thinking. Um, and there's a bunch of them. Anyway, but the the theological argument to that is that they have lived lives of purity and goodness that um, that they have sort of bridged or they have sort of pierced the veil of heaven on earth that it it had a physical effect on their bodies. They are decaying, but it is a slowed down decaying than sort of the regular people because they've had that sort of life of purity and goodness. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, I'm still my head's still spinning from the whole like free will and heaven thing. Yeah. Um, Fun stuff. I just think it's also hard to talk about because um, so like the Isaiah. Yeah, I'm probably going to get a classical stuff you got wrong. I think it's Isaiah. The um, the image of the lion laying down with the lamb. Like the fundamental nature of how everything's going to relate to each other will be so different. Like it's hard to even discuss. Like I'll be me but without the sin in me. So like, I can't, I don't even know how to talk about rightly that. organized desires. I've talked with some students before who are like really worried about losing that sin. Cause they're like, well, I'm funny because of those things. And they're like, it's so tied to my personality. Like what would it mean to have that ripped out of me? And it's like, one day you will desire that. Like, well, I think you could just tell them like, it won't be ripped. It will be redeemed. Like you're <laughs> well, thinking of it cut out. What's but the CS Lewis one where the, he has the thing on the shoulder. It's lust. So yeah. he's got this little lizard on his shoulder. That's always whispering these horrible lascivious things to him and being like, blah, blah, blah. and he says, I don't want to get rid of it. I, I love it. And I want, I want to keep it. And the guy's like, look, if you want to, if you want to be here, you got to kill that thing. Yeah. And once it's killed, it'll be better. And so he like kills the lizard and the lizard dies and then turns into this huge, beautiful stallion and he rides off on his brand new sexuality, yeah. um, which is such a fun picture of the redemption of the sinful part of you. Like that kid isn't funny because of the sin. He's right. funny because yes. he's funny. That's what, the sin is the cheap way to get to those jokes. Yes, that's exactly, that's 100% it. Um, and like a humor that honors God. Like what a, what a great thing to aim at. Um, well, clearly that's just puns, right? It's yes. only, <laughs> that's the only, yeah, wait, only puns. Wait, I'd be okay with that. All right. So anything else? Uh, we, yeah, we're drawing this to a close. So cool. you opened us, right? I think I did. So uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any classical stuff we got wrong, which we never make mistakes, so please don't. Uh, or if you have thoughts on topics or you just want to say hello, uh, we are classical stuff at veritasacademy.net. We are on Twitter at classical stuff, C-L-C-S. I probably shouldn't say this before actually knowing what it is. Just Google it. C-L-S-S-C-A-L. Kluskal. C-L. It's got our logo. What he just said. Yeah. C-L-S-S-C. <laughs> wait, wait. It has our logo? You want them to search Twitter for our logo? No, it's just oh. you'll know when you find it. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, if you have enjoyed this episode, would love if you would give us a review. That'd be really cool. And I think that's it. Anyone else have anything to say? Any commonplace quotes? Didn't. I, I read enough from a book today. Nailed I feel it. like I'm off the hook.
Oh, I, I mean, kept, I just think of that. For years, didn't I you? still think of that like sufficient to stand though free to fall. A line from Milton as like a good, as a good descriptor. Um, anyway, <laughs> all right. Well, this has been classical stuff you should know. Uh, this is Thomas Graham and AJ signing off. Signing off. Bye.